Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week, we are going back to voices. At Voices, we try to go beyond talking about fashion. We talk about how fashion fits into the wider world. And looking back at this past year, we can't discuss the wider world without addressing the growing power of huge technology companies. Our first speaker was Christopher Wiley, a social researcher and data scientist who was called the most influential person in technology in 2018 by Business Insider. As the former director of research for Cambridge Analytica and SCL Group, a UK-based military contractor specializing in information warfare, Christopher witnessed firsthand how culture, information, and algorithms were being used by militaries, governments, and companies to undermine elections around the world. On March 17th, working closely with Christopher as a whistleblower, explosive stories about Cambridge Analytica's misuse of Facebook data were published in The Observer and The New York Times, describing how Cambridge Analytica enabled an unprecedented attack on the US democratic process during the election of Donald Trump in 2016 by harvesting the Facebook data of up to 87 million people. The data were then used to micro-target users with political ads and messaging designed to influence them based on sophisticated psychographic traits, providing the ability to manipulate behavior by understanding how someone thinks and what they fear. This story sent shockwaves around the world. Millions of people deleted their Facebook accounts and the next day, Facebook's stock price dropped by 7%, wiping $36 billion off the company's market capitalization. Six weeks later, Cambridge Analytica shut down. After reading more about Christopher, I was intrigued to learn that he had worked in fashion trend forecasting, and I wondered what Cambridge Analytica and the fashion industry could possibly share in common. I sought Christopher out to ask him myself, and when we sat down earlier this summer, I learned that the links and connections to fashion were much closer than anyone could have imagined. At Voices, Christopher shared something new for the very first time, something that had not been shared anywhere else in the world an explicit link between the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the fashion industry, and the election of Donald Trump. So here's Christopher Wiley at Voices 2018 on fashion models and cyber warfare. So I'm going to start uh, with a story about how Cambridge Analytica um, came to be. And it all started with a conversation um, in the autumn of 2013 at uh, Cambridge. And I was sitting in a hotel suite, and a man came in, and we started talking, and I was told, uh, you know, you, we have a client potentially, and you need to have a chat with this guy. So he flew in from America, and we started talking, and he asked, so tell me, what do you do? And I said, the, the best way to describe it is I use computers to try to glimpse into the destiny of cultures. And he sort of looked at me and grimaced and rolled his eyes, and he said, cut the bullshit, just tell me, like, what do you actually do? What, so what is culture then? And I remember this, this moment just so vividly because he, he was dressed with two shirts on top of one another, two Oxford shirts, as if he had either forgotten to take off the shirt before or that he was somehow trying to, I don't know, keep everything in carry-on and skip the luggage. He had just flown in from America. And 
I could tell that he hadn't had a shower, and he had that sort of layer of grime that you get after a transatlantic flight. And he looked somewhere in between a disheveled madman and a divorced car salesman who was sort of acquiescing to his inevitable corpulence. Um, but this conversation stays with me because he spoke with a certain wokeness that I haven't heard except at places like Berkeley. Um, you know, he talked about Foucault, we talked about Judith Butler, the performativity of identity, the nature of our fractured selves. And he talked a good game. And I was like, girl, you read some third wave shit. Cool. But I said, that's all great, but as a data scientist, I need quantifiable units, not just theories. And so we started talking about, okay, so what are the units of culture? If in order for us to understand what is culture, what are the units of culture? And I said that culture has to emerge from something. And I, su I suggested to him that culture emerges from people and that it is our humanity that is the unit of culture. So if we can measure what is inside of people, we can estimate what will emerge from them. And that by looking at culture as a distribution of attributes within ourselves that then plays out in the wider worlds, we can start to understand uh, where it goes. And so it, if, we, if we indulge in a little bit of light stereotyping, if you think about how we describe, for example, an Italian, right, or Italians in general, or Germans, right? We might say that Italians are, when you go to Italy, they're more passionate, or they're a bit more extroverted. If we talk about Germans, they're precise, and they're good at engineering, right? And of course, that's not true for every Italian or every German, but what we're, what we're using, what the language that we're using is really important, because we are using the same words that we would describe ourselves, or the person over here, to describe an entire culture. And so, in this conversation, we started unpacking, well, perhaps there's something to that. Perhaps that these, these words that we use to describe people and cultures are actually an implicit understanding of a distribution, a curve. And that, some, that there are more people in one place that might be one way, and more people in another place that might be another way. And so, he then asked, so how does culture change then? And that's when we started talking about fashion trends, because at the time I was also researching fashion trends. And we talked about the difference between Crocs on one hand and Chanel's little black dress on the other, and all of the variables that get put into making one quick and fast and regrettable, and another enduring and iconic. And it was in this moment that I had the captive audience of an interesting and interested man. And we flirted with ideas that no one had ever really talked about. And it was in that moment that he was sold. But I didn't know in that moment, sitting in that hotel room, that we were about to destroy the world together. And it was in that moment that I became Icarus, and I put on wax wings, and I flew into the sun. And I dragged millions of people 
with me. And it was from this conversation, this folly, that the world then burned. So before meeting Steve Bannon, uh, I was recruited to work at a military contractor called SCL Group. And our, our clients, our largest clients were the Pentagon, our largest clients were the Ministry of Defense, NATO. And the reason I got hired was because my predecessor uh, died in his hotel room in Kenya on a project. And at the time, the company looked at this opening as an opportunity to shift um, its focus more into cyberspace, because at the time, uh, DARPA, which is the US military's research agency, was expanding its capacity in cyberspace. So it had programs called narrative networks, it had a program called uh, strategic communications and social media. It even had research into how to take memes, like lolcats, and weaponize them. And it was through engaging with DARPA and the military that I learned that you can pretty much sum up military strategy in one word, and that word is dominance. Every military strategy is about dominance. And in military doctrine, they talk about something called the five-dimensional battle space. So that's land, air, sea, space as in outer space, and then the fifth dimension is information. And within information, that is where you have psychological operations, that is where you have cyber operations, and that is where you have cultural operations. So how does the military fight in culture? Like anything else, it builds weapons. And so we have to sort of unpack the meaning of weapon in order to understand what a cultural weapon is. So there's a distinction that the military makes between something called kinetic weaponry, which is things that use explosives, ballistics, things that blow up, you know, they're like boys with toys, and hybrids uh, and non-kinetic approaches like information, like psychological manipulation, where you are attacking the belligerent or undermining the belligerent using non-kinetic means without blowing stuff up. And so this is called hybrid warfare. And I think the easiest way to think about weapons is if we, start, if we unpack what a knife is. So if we think about a knife and we imagine what a knife is, right? It's sharp, you can stab stuff. But the knife in itself isn't a weapon until the context becomes weaponized. So if, if I'm chopping vegetables, right, and I'm a chef, I'm not, that, this knife is not a weapon, it's a tool. But if I take this knife and I stab it into your abdomen, is it a weapon? It might not be. What if I'm a surgeon and I'm cutting you open because I need to perform heart surgery? It is a very specific context that this knife becomes a weapon, right? And it is when it's intended to hurt someone or stop someone. And when you look at weapons research, you have two components. You have a targeting system and a payload delivery system. So if we think about a missile, right, we've got the payload, which is the explosives, and the targeting system, which is the radar and how you aim it. And in information, and in culture, we also have a targeting system. That targeting system is algorithms. 
that targeting system is, is literally called targeting online. And the payload delivery is a cultural narrative. And the role of a cultural weapon is to create what is called informational asymmetry, which is where you have so much more information around your target that you can understand their environment, what goes on their head, and you can seek to manipulate them. The Facebook, the Facebook profiling and the role of the Facebook profiling was to gain informational asymmetry. Because in order to dominate your opponent, whether they are an ISIS extremist, you know, whether they are a North African extremist, or whether, in, in the case of Cambridge Analytica, an American voter, you need to control the entire informational environment. And that Facebook data was used to profile people and then forecast the spread of narratives. If you touch this person, what is the likelihood that you can undermine their perception of reality and then for them to share that disinformation with another person and then another person and another person? And what I realized, putting my, my fashion hat on for a second, is that DARPA and the NSA were trying to recreate WGSN. They were trying to recreate Saatchi and Saatchi. They were trying to create a social influencer agency. And that information operations is actually just the military trying to engage in culture, like any kind of brand would do. And I remember thinking, how cool is that? That I get to work in culture, but I also get to help defend our country. And they just use different terms. So they talk about, for example, inauthentic coordinated behavior. Or, or influencer analysis, or influence attribution, or my favorite, uh, target profiles observed acting in concert. Ooh, scary. So if you think about it, what these words, targets observed acting in concert, what, what the hell is acting in concert? It's when you do something together, right? So if I'm wearing something that you're also wearing, and you're wearing, and you're wearing, Right? That's us acting in concert. We're dressing in concert. We might be hashtagging in concert. We might be listening to the top 40 in concert or going to a concert in concert. So the cultural zeitgeist itself is just people acting in concert. It's a trend. We were looking at trends. We were working with the military to try to figure out how to examine trends. That's it. That's what we were doing. Um, and at the time, I was studying for a PhD in fashion. And you know, people would ask me, so why, why bother trying to model cultures um, you know, in a computer? And my favorite physicist, because I have a favorite physicist, um, Richard Feynman, he said, that the only way for you to know that you know something is for you to be able to recreate it. So the logic that I had is, if I could recreate a fashion trend in a computer, then that is the moment where we will start to unpack what actually is a fashion trend. What is fashion? What is style? And why do people, like, what is this contagion factor of us, if I wear something and somehow somebody catches the fashion and starts, starts spreading? 
Um, and it, it was looking at the micro-interactions uh, of people and using data of people that we could then start to unpack these sort of macro effects. And fashion is a really ideal uh, way to study people because choosing what to wear is a choice that every single person in the entire world makes every day. And the performance of wearing clothes is, is one of the few things that actually distinguishes us from animals. And from the, extra, from the mundane to the extravagant, people in all cultures make choices about how to adorn their bodies. And so wearing clothes is a near universal and uniquely human behavior. And in this light, fashion can be seen as pervasive to the human condition. So why did I say that? Because fashion is powerful. And when we think about fascist movements, or extremist movements, or communist movements, the first thing that normally happens is they develop an aesthetic. So we can very, very, very pointedly imagine what a Nazi looks like, right? What a skinhead looks like, what a Maoist looks like, what an ISIS fighter looks like, right? They have a very distinct aesthetic, and there's a reason for that, because fashion is powerful. And when SCL Group, this military contractor, became Cambridge Analytica after Steve Bannon and alt-right billionaires bought it and changed the research that we were doing, one of the first things that they realized was how powerful fashion is and how powerful it is to understand how people engage with clothing. Because there are strong relationships between the brands and the styles and the aesthetics that people engage with and how they see themselves and their identity. And if you are seeking to understand the dynamics of a society through people's identity, looking at what they wear is a really good entry point. And so I think we've got some stuff on the screen, which I will try to explain to you. Okay. These are um, actual items from surveys that were put out in the application, in this Facebook application that people talk about, that harvested 87 million people's records. One of the, one of the key inventories that was used was about fashion. And so if you, if you look at here, right, you know, compared to my friends, I own a few new fashion items, right? What would that tell you about a person? Intuitively, you understand who this person is if they tell you about it, right? So if we move, if we move to the next, next slide, Oop. next one. Oop, we're going backwards. Oop, that's out of order. There we go. No, 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 don't show that. Yeah, there we go. Hold on. Just pretend you didn't say that. Okay. So, these are two brands. Does everybody know these brands? Mostly, yeah, mostly. Okay. All right. So, Wrangler, it's a jean company. An Abercrombie jean youthwear, I don't know what to call it. All right. So, are people who wear Wrangler different to people who wear Abercrombie? Do you, do you, does that feel intuitive to you? If I say, my favorite brand is Wrangler, and you don't know anything about me, can you imagine me? And if I say, 
I love Abercrombie. I love the models. I don't love Abercrombie. But Sorry if anybody's here from Abercrombie. Um, so we, 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 can, we, can, we can imagine who this person is. Why? Because brands have meaning. And when people engage with the brand, what they're doing is matching themselves and their identity to the meaning of that brand. So they call that self-congruity theory. And one of the things that Cambridge Analytica noticed quite quickly when it started pulling all of this Facebook data is the things that produced correlations the most, it was fashion brands, it was music, it was TV shows. Um, and so if we move to the next slide, we can take a look at the, the actual difference between Abercrombie and Wrangler. So here, this is the mean, this is, this is, this is the mean point, and this is the difference of people who like Abercrombie or people who like Wrangler compared to average, okay? And so we can take a look. Okay, so let's, let's just like take a guess, right? Um, in, terms of ex, in terms of excitement seeking, do you think Aber people who like Abercrombie want to seek out exciting things or people who wear Wrangler? Abercrombie. And if you look at the, the, the narratives that Abercrombie puts out, it's flashy, it's exciting. Wrangler is all about, you know, it's like a cowboy. But it's sort of like, it's sort of, it's a bit older. So if we look at all of these axes, these are, these are personality traits. We've got liberalism down here at the bottom. And we can see that there is actually quite a clear difference between a person who's at, who likes Abercrombie and a person who likes Wrangler, right? Is modesty, do you think somebody who wears Wrangler is more modest than somebody who wears Abercrombie? Yeah, it's up there, you can see it, you, you can cheat, you can just look at the data. See, that, that's, a, that's the thing, that's the thing. As when, I, when I work in trend forecasting, I don't, I don't imagine anything. I just look at data and tell people. So this is actually from Cambridge Analytica data. And the reason I'm showing you this is because this is a really clear difference. This is, this is what you call producing a signal. And if we move to the next slide. Ooh, it's all sideways. Okay, cool. Um, so these are the five five core personality traits against tons of fashion brands. And what's really interesting is when you organize personality data into, into clusters, it starts organizing people based on their personality. And if you ask, what is in this group versus that group versus that group, what are the, what, what's, what, what are the, what are the uh, brands that distinguish these people from other people? And it actually starts to... Uh, categorize the fashion market without using any fashion data. And it's really interesting when you start to unpack this, right? Like, people who, who like Lululemon are more extroverted. That makes sense. Extroversion is like activity, it's excitement-seeking, it's somebody who wants to go out and run, right? And if we look on the other end, right, here, Lookbook, I don't know if people know Lookbook, it's a sort of blog-type site, people take pictures of themselves and post it, about their, like the clothes that they're wearing. So you've got people who are very open, but also very neurotic. And that's not a criticism of, that's not a criticism of Lookbook, it's a cool site, but you've got people who really like creative stuff, really like new stuff, and, but perhaps they're more self-conscious, more anxious, right? And so by posting on Lookbook, they might be getting the kind of validation that would boost their confidence, right? So it kind of makes sense. And we then look at a brand like L.L. Bean, right, 
which is quite high in conscientiousness, which is order, structure, you know, dutifulness, and low in openness. These are people who like to be more conventional. And if you look and you've imagined the aesthetic of L.L. Bean, it is pretty conventional, right? You don't imagine L.L. Bean on, you know, L.L. Bean and Kenzo are quite different, right? And the people who engage with that are quite different. All of this seems intuitive, right? But the cool thing about this is this is borne out in data. So if we go to the next slide. There we go. So we can now see, this is, this is from Cambridge Analytica, and this is them organizing groups of people according to personality traits on the top and fashion brands on the bottom, on the side there. And this is how I see the world. I see the world through matrices and dendrograms and things like that. But we can see that there are clear signals being produced and there are clear divisions of people on a psychometric basis and how they engage with fashion brands. And fashion brands, in that light, is sort of a clue as to who these people are. And people say, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. And I agree with that. But books have covers for a reason. They're a synopsis. They're a clue as to what's going to be inside. Disco reading the book is much more interesting than just reading a synopsis. But one of the things that Cambridge Analytica realized was fashion brands are like the book cover, right? And so actually, they are really useful in producing uh, algorithms to identify how people think and how they feel. So if we move to... So this is a map that was also produced at Cambridge Analytica. And it's a bit pixely, so you might not be able to see. This is the Burberry check. There. These are people who engage regularly with the Burberry brand. Right? And these are literal people. Actual people. Like, these are actual people. Like, you can phone them. You can talk to them. Right? And the reason I show you this is because the data that Cambridge Analytica was looking at didn't just look at brands in the aggregate, like, these are about people. It's important to understand, like, every, these are actual people, actual humans, engaging with Burberry. And that engagement was put into a funnel that built those algorithms. So if we... All right, cool. Um, if we also move the... Sorry, I feel like a conductor. Stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, cool. So how is this data used? Fashion data was used to build AI models um, to help Steve Bannon build his insurgency uh, and build the alt-right. And the alt-right is an insurgency. We used weaponized algorithms, we used weaponized cultural narratives to undermine people and undermine their perception of reality. Um, and fashion played a big part in that. And it's really important to understand what that does to a democracy. Um, and so if we imagine what is a democracy, or what is, you know, uh, you know what, when we think about an election, or we think about a candidate, we think usually about, you know, some, somebody like me standing up on stage and talking to you, right? And this situation is a really good example. If we're having like a town hall event, if I'm a candidate standing for election, you all hear exactly the same thing, right? You hear me. You have a common perception of this reality, right? And you all see other people seeing what you're seeing. And there might be journalists in the audience. There might be civil society in the audience. There might be Joe who just knows a thing or two. 
And if I say something that's untrue, if I lie to you, if I deceive you, somebody in the audience can say, that's bullshit. But what targeting and hyper-personalization has done is I can now make myself invisible. And so rather than standing here in this town square doing a town hall, I can go and whisper into each and every one of your ears. And I can do that without anybody else seeing. And I can do that, I can whisper into your ear, and sometimes I look like a newspaper, sometimes I look like your friend, sometimes I look like an expert. You don't see who I am. And I can appear like anything to you with the benefit of having followed you for months on end, listened to the conversations that you have, reading your text messages, reading your IMs, looking at what you like, what you watch, where you go. Do you take the bus? Do you take an Uber? Where do you work? How much money do you make? By the way, these are all the things that are in the terms and conditions of Facebook, by the way. Um, and I can, I, can, I can take all of that information and seek to undermine your perception of reality by figuring out that one thing that makes you anxious, that one thing that makes you worried, that one thing that makes you paranoid. And we have to take a step back and look at history. The civil rights movement was fought to desegregate society. And when we look at history, there are a lot of pretty profound problems that happen when we separate people, right? And so we often talk about segregation on racial grounds or ethnic grounds. But under the, the, the auspice of personalization, algorithms are starting to resegregate society, right? We, we are creating echo chambers. We are creating cognitive monocultures. We are creating informational ghettos. The segregation that is happening now online, it may not be on ethnic terms, it may not be on religious terms, it's on cognitive terms. We are cognitively segregating our society under the auspice of hyper-personalization. And that's a problem, because people can get hurt when we stop talking to one another. And the real problem is that we've got tech companies who see cyberspace as a wholly lawless frontier. And I think that colonialism is a really good way of understanding what is currently happening in Silicon Valley. So they see the internet as a terra nova, what, what, what Europeans used to call terra nova, not recognizing that people actually live in the, quote, new world, and it wasn't new for them. But they would call it terra nova. It's new territory. That means we can do what we want. And, you know, when we... When we look at you know, the, the, the first contact that Europeans made, you had these men on ships, tall ships, wearing steel, with guns, with technology, and they land on the beach, and they meet indigenous people. And those indigenous people go, wow, look at these people, these big white men with their giant ships and their steel and their gunpowder. We've never seen anything like it. These, these must be, you know, divine messengers, but they weren't. They were conquerors. They were seeking to exploit people. They were seeking to exploit resources. 
you know, in, 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 in that day, it was gold, right? It was oil, it was rubber, it was human flesh and slaves. Um, but, but now, um, you know, we've got, we've got these Silicon Valley leaders, these founders, and over the past 10 years, there's been this narrative. Look at how amazing these companies are, right? Look at, look at all the amazing things that they can do. They, they must be our saviors. But in the same way that colonists turned out to not be saviors for indigenous people, these companies are not our savior. They are seeking to colonize us. And you can look at what is happening even now, right? You look at what happened in Myanmar with Facebook's Free Basics program, right? Facebook goes into countries and creates an internet infrastructure that did not exist before and seeks to edit the internet. It decides what is considered basic internet and not basic internet. And these services got used to, to rapidly spread disinformation about Muslims in Myanmar or in Sri Lanka. And there are countless numbers of examples where people were literally murdered because of these narratives. And Facebook's response was literally, we are not perfect, we are on a journey. That was their response to people being murdered in Myanmar. And that's a real problem because Facebook is emerging as the new East India company of the internet. It is seeking to exploit us, it is seeking to exploit resources, and when there's a problem, it will outsource that or just leave. And that's what colonizers do. And this is, this is dangerous because the resource that they are seeking is data. And it's data about you. And as soon as, when we look at history and we look at what happens when people fall into narratives about being products, when people become products, we have the slave trade, we have the sex trades, we have the organ trade, and we are now at the precipice of creating a data trade, where who you are as a person, your identity, is a product. And you look at the really insidious language that Silicon Valley uses, they, they say, oh, no, 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 no. These aren't mass surveillance networks, they're communities. The, you know, the, 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 the data that we're using is data exhaust, or digital breadcrumbs, as if your identity is a waste product. And that's dangerous because if we imagine ourselves going into the future, right, this is not just about ads on Facebook, right? People now are starting to put AI into their homes, right? You've got people putting in Alexa or Google Home. Facebook now has some camera that you can put in your living room that connects to the ad network if you want to do that. Um, and if we imagine what is the direction five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, when all of these physical AI systems start interconnecting, where you get up and your house knows, and your living room thinks about you, and your kitchen thinks about you, and your bathroom thinks about you, and your kids' toys think about them, think about your kids whilst they're playing. And when you get into your car, your car talks to your house and thinks about you, and then talks to the street, and the street thinks about you. And for the first time, being human will be fundamentally different 
because for the first time, we will be sitting in an environment that watches us, that thinks about us, independent of other humans. And what happens when judgment calls are made? What happens when AI treats you not as a person, not as you, but as something to be optimized, right? And it can be as simple as the street decides that you should be late for work because you haven't paid for premium access. Or it can be as perverse as your house decides that you shouldn't see the news today, or you shouldn't see anything. And the real problem is who gets to decide how you get optimized? Or even, should you be optimized? The difference between Facebook or Cambridge Analytica or all these tech companies and the NSA, right, the, national, the, 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 the surveillance organization for the United States government, is quite simple, but it's quite profound. The NSA, their targets are extremists, are spies, are foreign countries, you are collateral collection for them. On Facebook, you are the target. Um, and, you know, we are building addictive environments, and they're intentionally addictive. If you think about Instagram, right, and you're swiping. If you think about slot machines, they're called ludic loops. It's a precursor to addiction. Repetitive tasks that give you an occasional reward make you addicted to shit. And these companies know that. And that's why they design user experiences to be addictive. And the, 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 my concern is that we are on the precipice of building a dystopia just so that we can make people click ads. I think that's fucked up. Cambridge Analytica was just the canary in the coal mine. When we, un, we, you know, when we unpack what is a weapon, or more importantly, in my view, what is a weapon of mass destruction? A weapon of mass destruction is an indiscriminate weapon that causes chaos and grievous harm to an entire society that endures for generations. And Cambridge Analytica detonated a weapon of mass destruction, an informational weapon of mass destruction, on Facebook. And Facebook did nothing to stop it. Facebook was aware, and they did nothing to stop it. And what the Cambridge Analytica story really shows is that we cannot keep relying on the promises, the apologies, the good intentions of tech companies to protect citizens, you and your kids. Because they have failed far too many times to deserve our trust. You know, the first thing that Facebook did when they found out that the story was coming out is they immediately threatened to sue The Guardian for defamation. They said, none of it's true. At the same time, they sent me a letter saying, it's all true, but that means we're going to report you to the police, not realizing that I had already reported Facebook to the police. And when they realized that they couldn't threaten or intimidate, you know, The Guardian or The New York Times or me with legal threats, they decided to try to deflect and change the narrative. And so they banned me, um, a whistleblower, off of Facebook and Instagram and anything else that uses Facebook or Instagram, I can no longer use. Um, 
And I say that not to, not to you know, not as a boo-hoo story, well, woe is me, I can't, you know, look at well-curated pictures of avocado toast anymore. <laughs> but I say that because it reveals my ban as a whistleblower reveals the unrestrained power that technology companies have over users when in a person's entire online existence can be so abruptly eliminated from existence. And there was no due process, there was no appeal. It was a unilateral decision taken by Facebook. And we have to ask a question, because what happens to our democracy when a tech company can just delete people at will, who dissent or who scrutinize or who speak out? And it was this unrestrained power and what happened that allowed Facebook to delete me off of the internet. I mean, it literally, I can't, I can't, it's so hard to use the internet now because you wouldn't believe how much, how many websites connect to Facebook. It's, it's crazy. You, start, you, start, you only start recognizing how pervasive this company is when you no longer could use it. But, so we can't rely on tech companies to solve this problem. We also can't rely on the military because the military, um, you know, they don't hire people like me, right? I've got neon hair, and I run my mouth, and I'm always late, and I don't salute unless it's, you know, late at night after a grinder message or two. Um, and, you know, that was TMI. Um, and, you know, frankly, do we really want the military engaging with our culture? You know, do we, do, we, do we really want the military to be sliding into our DMs once in a while saying, hey, the army thinks you shouldn't be looking at that? Probably not, because that sounds pretty scary too. And so, all of that said, that's why I'm here. Because it's actually the cultural sector who we need. We need you. What I just showed you before on that graph you know, that music, the art, the fashion can tell you lots of stuff about people, right? That, that it moves people, that it reveals their identity. You guys already know that. That's intuitive. Like, I've just, you know, essentially mansplained your industry to you, the graph. Um, but that's because you work in culture and you understand its power. But so did Cambridge Analytica. And the thing that I really want to say to you guys is that Cambridge Analytica exploited the cultural narratives that these sectors were putting out, right? Cambridge Analytica exploited toxic masculinity. It exploited feelings of shame and feelings of failure and, you know, unattainable, these narratives that are completely unattainable, that are put out on a day-to-day -day basis by fashion, by music, by media. And that was exploited. So when we talk about things like the need for diversity, right, and the representation of minorities or people of color, you know, so that, you know, a black person or a lesbian woman or a person in a wheelchair can see themselves in the narratives that you create, you know, we, we, we talk about it as if that's the value. We are past that point. Because we need new narratives in our culture, not just so that a minority or person of color can see themselves. We need it so that 
you know, straight white men in Alabama can see a person of color once in a while, right? We need you guys to do a better job at cultivating our cultural narratives for our own national security and for the preservation of our democracy. The shame, the colonialism, the racial biases, the toxic masculinity, the fat shaming that this industry puts out is, and has been putting out for decades, is exactly what Cambridge Analytica sought to exploit when they were seeking to undermine people and manipulate them. And Russia exploited it, Cambridge Analytica exploited it, Brexit exploited it, Bannon exploited it, and who knows who will continue to exploit it, right? When we, when we talk about cultural warfare, it is warfare in culture, and you guys make culture. So that's why we need cultural defense. And cultural narratives are the arsenal to defend ourselves in that cultural war. We all make and define these narratives. And like I showed you in the graph, conservatives, a lot of conservatives, and even people in the alt-right, shop at your stores, buy into your brands, and get consumed by the narratives that you immerse them in. And the thing that I want to say is that there is no difference between your customers and voters. They are the same people. So I hope that you guys will start conversations with your customers. And that begins by how you craft your brands, how you craft your imagery, how you craft your clothes, how you show your values, because we depend on you guys, frankly, not only to make our culture, but also to protect our culture. We are in a cultural war. You guys have created the battlefield. And it is up to you if Trump or if Brexit or if the alt-right either become Crocs or become Chanel of our political age. The technology sector may live by Zuckerberg's mantra of move fast and break things, but society is being broken in the process. And so it is time for culture makers to step in and hopefully to move fast so that we can fix things. So fix these narratives. Start by engaging your customers. Challenge them. Make them think. Make them feel. Make them understand. Show them a reality for once. And you have to. We have to. Because if we lose our culture, we will lose our humanity in the process. So that is my challenge to you. Thank you. <laughs>